Hello. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. We hope that you will be encouraged and it builds your faith. Thanks for listening. In chapter 10, well, this is an interesting chapter in the book of Revelation. We have been, if you've been with us since chapter 5, we've gone through, you begin to see that uh, we started to uh, go through the uh, first part or through the tribulation period, chapter 5, through here, chapter 10, up till chapter 10. And, and what you're going to see in the next few chapters is you're going to see behind the scenes, what we have seen the uh, seven seals that have been opened and the seven trumpet judgments that have, that have been opened. And here we are now between the sixth and the seventh trumpet being opened. And there is here again what they call a, uh, uh, a parenthetical chapter. It's like a chapter with parentheses. We'll talk about that for a minute. But this is an interesting chapter because this chapter is all about Jesus. And it's interesting when we, when we look at the book of Revelation, how in the midst of this, what you're going to see the next few chapters is you're going to see what was going on behind the scenes when all of these judgments were being released, when all these seven seals were being released and the trumpet judgments, what was going on behind the scenes. And so the next few chapters, we're going to begin to look at the, at the Antichrist, the beast. We're going to begin to look at what was happening behind the scenes while those judgments were being poured out on the face of the earth. But um, how many know Jesus is more than just a great man? And uh, uh, Islam would say that he's, he's a great prophet, but how many we know we know he's more than just a great prophet? Liberalism will say that they look to Jesus and they see a philosopher or they see a teacher. Some would say they even see an example. But how many know that he's more than just a philosopher. He's more than just a teacher. How many know that Jesus Christ is a might, is the mighty God? He is, he is mighty. He is the mighty God. And what we do is we see Jesus and here in Revelation 10. We see a picture of Christ. We see a, a picture of Jesus here, but it's an unusual picture. Uh, we saw him in chapter 1. Uh, we saw him in 3. Uh, we see a picture of him. Uh, but we're, we're going to see an interesting picture of him, and it's going to be a depiction of him. And I titled this message, Jesus, the one and only tonight, because I want us to see some things here tonight when we look in the book of Revelation about Jesus. And of course, Revelation 10 is in the middle of the great tribulation. It's the last part of the great tribulation. We see the judgments being poured out. Um, uh, we know that through Matthew 24, 21, that this is a time on the earth like none other in the period of history. We're in a seven-year period where judgment is being poured out. The church has already been raptured. And, and the last three and a half years of the great tribulation will be the most severe of all the seven-year period. And, and this is a, a, a time of judgment like none other. It is a time of judgment that Jesus said when, has not ever been seen on the face of the earth. And so when we look at this, we see these horrors of judgments being laid out. We talked about some of them, how horrific they will be. We tried to give some insight on uh, the scripture and what it was talking about with some of these judgments. But here in chapter 10 brings a little bit of relief and a little bit of hope. We see that in the end of chapter 9, we see that mankind um, who were not killed by plagues or killed by the judgments, the scripture says they continue to refuse to repent and to worship, uh, repent of their works of their hands that they should not worship. Uh, they continue to worship idols and demons, gold and silver, the scripture tells us, and they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their immorality, uh, or their thefts. They continue to reject God in the midst of all this judgment. But here in Revelation 10, we see the opening of the seventh seal. And in the opening of the seventh seal, uh, we begin to see that there's these seven thunders that take place. 
here in, 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 the, in this chapter. But the next four chapters, we're going to be seeing a little bit behind the scenes to see what God and Satan was doing, doing while these trumpets were being, while the judgments were being coming upon the face of the earth. And so we begin to see this as we begin to look. This is what's called a, a parent, parenthetical chapter. And, and in this chapter, we're always, it's a chapter that reminds us, it is a break in the scene to remind us of God's uh, grace and his power. Isn't it amazing that in the middle of God judging the earth, he gives John a vision and a picture of his grace and power again. It is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ as we begin to look at this. Let's begin to look at this here in chapter 10 in verse 1. It says, And I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was on his head. His face was like the sun, and his feet like a pillar of fire. And so Revelation 1, what we begin to see, this mighty angel appears. And this mighty angel is a depiction, I believe, is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it is what we would call uh, in Scripture uh, a theophany or a Christophany. In the Old Testament, the Scripture tells us that there were several times where Jesus himself appeared as an angel. Matter of fact, we, we see in Genesis chapter 22, 15, um, when, when, when uh, Abraham was sacrificing Isaac, and the scripture said, and the angel of the Lord called out from heaven um, unto uh, Abraham. We also see it in Isaiah 63, 9, when, it's, when it calls, uh, when the children of Israel were being afflicted, and because they were being afflicted, God says that they were afflicting also him because they were afflicting his children. And it said that he sent the angel of his presence to comfort them or to be with them. And so here's a picture. We have a picture of Christ here in Revelation chapter 10. And he's coming as this appearance of an angel. And, and so we see these theophanies. Uh, again, we see a theophany here in the book of Revelation, in this parenthetical chapter where there's these parentheses that are here. And in the Old Testament, we see this appearance of Christ, and he shows up, and, and we begin to see. Now, theophanies are interesting. If you've ever studied them through the Scripture, um, there are God uses them and serves them as a guide for his people. Matter of fact, in the Old Testament, there are 50 Christophanies in the Old Testament. There are over 50, and, and so you say, well, what is it? Well, it is a, it is a I guess as a definition, definition, you could call it the appearance of God or Christ um, that, are the, that, that manifest or the appearance of God in Christ that is a manifestation uh, to the human senses, I guess is how they describe it. It serves uh, it's Christ himself manifesting himself or God manifesting himself to give guidance or God manifesting himself to the human senses to be seen. And so we see them throughout scripture. Abraham, if you remember, uh, when he went to rescue Lot, there were three angels that appeared to him and one spoke to him. It was a Christophany. Jacob wrestled with the angel. Uh, Moses uh, heard the voice of God or a Christophany through the fire of the burning bush. We saw that in the Old Testament that the pillar of cloud of fire was a picture of a Christophany. And so here we see this angel and, and we see the description of it and it is believed to be the Lord Jesus Christ. Now what this Christophanies, what do they show us? Why do they appear? Why do they appear in the Old Testament? Why did God send them? Why were they a sense of guidance or rescue for the children of, of God in the Old Testament? Well, they're a sense of God's presence. They're a sense that God is with them. And so, number one, we see that Christophanies show up uh, more than one way. In other words, it's to show that God manifests himself more in more than one way. In other words, God can't be put in the box. Job saw God in the, war, uh, in the whirlwind. In, uh, 
And so God many times manifests himself in many ways. And what does it say? It says that God can show up how he chooses to show up. How many know God can manifest himself any way he wants to manifest himself? I don't doubt God manifesting himself even in this hour. I'm here many, Gary Klein, who has, is a missionary to uh, uh, Israel, and he's been in Israel, and he has talked to several uh, Muslim men who have converted uh, to Christianity, and, and how they converted was that they, they had these visions of Jesus that would show up in a dream to them. And, and, and manifest themselves, and they give them their lives to Jesus through that manifestation. And so God shows up. He shows up in more than one way. In other words, how many know you can't put God in a box? It's to show God can choose to show up however he chooses to show up. And so also it shows us that it breaks the worldview um, that of, religion, of religions that say that God is distant. In Christophanes, it is a picture when God steps onto the scene. It shows his nearness to us. Thank God I serve a God that's near tonight, that's in our hearts, that's near to us. We can feel his presence tonight. We can know that he's here. And so these Christophanes were, would break the worldview of religions, of idols, who says that God is distant. God can't be reached. God can't be touched. I'm here to tell you that God can be touched. God can be here. He can show up on the scene and be with us. I don't know about you, but maybe you have testimony of where God intervened in your life in a powerful way where he shows up on the scene or the testimony that you know God had showed up and done something supernatural in your life and you testified to the fact that he was near to you, that he showed up. Thirdly, it shows these Christophanies, shows us an aspect of God to us, uh, the elements of God's character. It, it's a picture of God manifests himself in certain elements. In other words, uh, he showed up in a fiery pillar uh, that shows his power. He showed up uh, uh, like man, like a man, to Joshua, like a warrior, which means he showed up and made in the. It showed us that he's he's like us. We're made in the image of God. He shows up uh, in these aspects that release his character. He showed up as an, as and wrestled with Jacob and. Uh, when Jacob wanted to run away, God wrestled with him. How many know sometimes God wrestles with us when we want to run away from situations or run away from certain things? It, it's, it's a particular truth that God is always with us and that God shows himself to us and that it shows us that God is with us. And, and as I was praying about this, I thought to myself, it's interesting because if you remember the story of Joshua, Joshua, uh, he, was, uh, he, he showed up and he saw a giant and, and it was a warrior. And what did he say to him? He said, are you with us or are you against us? And, uh, and, and the angel spoke to Joshua and, and said that he was, a, he, was a, he was of the army of the host of the Lord. In other words, he was saying, I'm not on your side or their side, I'm on God's side. And so Joshua took off his feet knowing that he was in the presence. But I thought to myself, to Joshua, he showed up as a warrior. Why did he show up as a warrior? Because that's what Joshua needed. Joshua needed a warrior. And, and, but to, the, but to, the, but to the, uh, the three Hebrew children that were thrown in a fiery furnace... He showed up like a man, like the Son of God, the Scripture says. I believe that Jesus shows up. He shows up how, how they needed him. If they needed him to be a warrior, he was a warrior. If they needed him to be a sacrifice, like he showed up for Abraham in Genesis 22, then he'll show up as a sacrifice. And he'll show up however we need him or however we need him uh, in our lives. And so this is a picture of the Lord Jesus. And there's this description here in verse one, we begin to see, and I want us to see a couple of things. Number one, I want us to see 
the majesty of Christ's person, who he is. We see the cloud reference in, in verse 1. It describes the cloud that is with him. I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, clove with a cloud. Clove with a cloud. It, it, this cloud is not just any cloud. It is, a, it is a glory cloud. It's the Shekinah glory of God. The cloud is, is the garment of his divine presence. We, we see in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 7, the Bible tells us this, Behold, he's coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him. They, even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. In other words, it's a picture of him coming in glory. He's wrapped in the glory cloud of God. And it's a picture of his divine presence. I can tell you what makes Jesus like no other is the majesty of his glory and divine presence. How many know the majesty and glory of God is not like any other? It's not referring to the uh, cumulus clouds that we see in the sky, but a Shekinah glory. In other words, God is leading. The, God led the children of Israel through the wilderness. How did he do that? He did it through a glory cloud. He gave them a glory cloud that led them. And I believe this, if you're in a wilderness season in your life, God will send his presence to lead you and guide you. He will send his presence. It is a picture of his presence. It's a picture of his glory, of his presence. And Jesus here is like none other. His presence is like none other. And the glory and splendor we see that he comes in. It's interesting, in Matthew chapter 17, verse 5, we see the, the uh, Mount of Transfiguration. And you remember that uh, in the Mount of Transfiguration, what happened there is that the cloud of glory came around Jesus, and, and Peter and, and John and them saw Jesus in a transfigured state. And what did they want to do? They wanted to build a tabernacle, Right? Because they, the presence of God, the glory of God, they thought the glory of God had to be tabernacled. It had to be put in a, that it was a place, it was a certain place. And what Jesus was showing them is, listen, is that the presence of God is not a place. The presence of God is a person. The glory of God is a person in Christ Jesus. It is the person of Jesus Christ. Worship is not a place, it's a person who is Christ Jesus. And then we see, the Bible tells us, and there was, and a rainbow was on his head. His face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. Get this picture of Jesus. There's this, there's this unveiling of Jesus that comes in chapter 10. And it's, it's a, this parenthetical uh, revelation that shows up. And really what it is, it's a picture of God's grace and God's glory, again, showing up in the midst of trouble, in the midst of turmoil, in the midst of judgment, God is still merciful. How many are thankful God is merciful today? God was merciful to you and merciful to me. And even in the midst of judgment, in the midst of the tribulation, God is still pouring out his mercy, still showing himself to, to John and to the world that he is a God of mercy and a God of grace. This rainbow speaks of God's covenant, that he's a covenant-keeping Savior. God hung a rainbow in the sky after the flood to remind us of his covenant of grace. How many are thankful for grace tonight? I mean true grace. I'm not talking about phony grace. I'm not talking about the grace that gives you the license to live however you want to live and still call on the name of Jesus. How many know that grace is deeper than that? Grace empowers you. Grace empowers you to live righteously and to live holy. And so we thank God for his grace tonight. It is a picture of his grace. And I thought to myself of the rainbow, I thought Noah must have felt, this is what Noah must have felt when he stepped out of the ark and he stepped out of that ark into, into the earth that had been ruined and squashed by judgment and to see that rainbow in the sky, uh, Noah must have thought of the goodness and the grace of God that brought him through the floodwaters that literally destroyed the earth. We tonight sit here, I, I sit here and I think about 
what could have been in my life. And I step out into a world that I used to be a part of, that I used to think like, act like, walk like. And I go home and I thank God for his grace in my life. I'm thankful that I'm not what I used to be. I'm thankful that he's brought me out of the, the sin life that I had and showed grace upon my life and mercy upon my life. The scripture tells us that not only clothed with a cloud and a rainbow was on his head, his face was like the sun and his feet like pillars of fire. His face was like the sun. The sun is a symbol of grace. Matter of fact, Revelation 1.16 tells us that the sun is, is as, the, as shining with strength. The sun is a sign of strength. Not only is it a picture of his, but his countenance is as the sun. His countenance is as the sun. It is as the, 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 count, the sign of strength. It's a picture of strength. You know, years ago, many years ago, they used to think that the sun revolved around the earth until they figured out that all the planets surrounded the sun. And so before we got saved, Christ wasn't the center of our lives. But now that we know Christ, he's now the center of our life. Just as the sun is the center of our solar system, our, 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 our uh, system of planets, so is Christ the center of our lives. He is the strength of our lives. How many know that when you look upon the sun and when everything falls in place, when this, how many know when the sun is in the right place in our lives, everything else, S-O-N, everything else falls in place? We have an understanding of everything else. And Jesus holds everything together. How does he do it? He does it by his strength. John has given us a picture of the majesty of who he is. The majesty. The, 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 the majesty of his person and who he is, his strength, he upholds all things by the power of his word. We see his holiness in this passage. It's described in his feet as pillars of fire. Revelation 1.15 tells us that it is a flame of fire that, that consumes, it spreads, it cleans. How many know the fire of God can spread? How many know the fire of God can cleanse? How many know the fire of God can renew? And so this is a picture of his holiness. So we see this picture of Jesus. We see this picture of of his glory. We see this picture of grace, of strength, and holiness. It is a picture of the majesty of who he is, of his person. It is the majesty of who he is. In other words, what this does is when we learn When we learn how to totally worship the Lord Jesus, worship is all that I am responding to all he is. That's what worship is. Worship is all of me responding to all of who he is. Responding to him. As we study the book of Revelation, we need to see the Lord Jesus and not just the facts and the figures that we see in the book and and look this. It is, it is a revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what this book is. It is a revelation of who Jesus is. It's not just about the things that are coming down the road, but it is a picture of who he is, <coughs> that we see him in a greater light. And when we read the book of Revelation, we should love him more than we've ever loved him before. Fall in love with him more and more. Revelation just doesn't talk about what's going to happen But who's going to come? Who's coming? Jesus is coming. It is a picture of his coming. And so it's the majesty of his person. We need to continue to fall in love with the majesty of his person. Secondly, I want us to see the mastery of his power. Look at verse 2. It said he had a, a little book open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. Now we see this picture. Now this book that is spoken of, we, we've seen before. It is in Revelation chapter 5. And this book is the deed to the universe. It's the book that the seals have been broken open from. And this book is now open. 
And the book now shows Jesus Christ is coming to judge the earth and to take the possession. And the, the scripture tells us that it has one foot on the shore and one foot on the sea. And it is a picture in Bible times when a conqueror took land or a piece of property uh, that they had that was a shoreline, he would stand on the shore and place one foot on the shore and one foot in the water and another foot on the land and raise his hands in victory as a symbol that he had prevailed. This is a picture of Jesus not only coming and we see him in his majesty, but we are also now seeing him as one who has prevailed and who has conquered and he has prevailed in what he's come to conquer. It is, it is by his, he has come to conquer his, by creation, he's conquered by Calvary, and he's conquered by conquest. In other words, we see the mastery of, of who he is, the land he has conquered and subdued. Joshua 1.3, he tells Joshua, the soul, wherever the sole of your foot trod upon, I will give you. And so every drop of water, every grain of sand belongs to Jesus. The world was made by him and for him. Let me read to you Colossians chapter 1. I want to read to you Colossians chapter 1 and verse 16. It says this, For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are in the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and were created for him. How many are thankful tonight? He's in control and he has conquered all things. It is a picture of him conquering. He has broke the seals of the title deed of the earth. And so he's, he's conquered it through creation. He's conquered it through Calvary. He's conquered it through his conquest. And he has showed up and, the, and his majesty. And so if his majesty causes us to worship, his, master, his mastery causes us to totally surrender to him and to give lordship. If he's the reigning conqueror of the earth, then we sub submit ourselves to him. It is a time, it is a place of surrender. In other words, Romans chapter 14 and 11 says, every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Jesus is worthy of our total confidence tonight. He's a conqueror. And so when we see his majesty, we should worship. But when we see his mastery and his conquering, we should submit and surrender our lives unto him. This picture in John 10, or in Revelation 10, he is, he is revealing himself as these things so that the world will see that he is in complete control tonight. I know that we look out in our world and we think, my God, where is Christ? He's where he's always been, still sitting on the throne. He's still on the throne. He's still Lord of all. And we should show that by our surrender to his lordship and our surrender to his majesty tonight. Number three, I want us to see the mystery of his plans. Now, chapter three through seven is, is very powerful scripture. Look what it says. And it says, and he put one foot on the land and one foot on, on the sea and cried with a loud voice as when a lion roars. When he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices. Now when the seven thunders uttered their voices, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered and do not write them. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised up his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are in it and the earth and the things that are in it and the sea and the things that are in it, that there should be delay no longer. But in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God will be finished. And he declared to his servants, 
he will declare to his servants and to his prophets. Well, there's a lot here. The Bible says that as he stood on the sea and on the shore and on the land, there is a cry of a loud voice in this passage from the angel. And it's, and it's, and it's the passage, and this passage is the angel of God's presence, the Lord Jesus. Um, we see this messenger angel. And he says, and he cries with a loud voice. And when he cries out, he doesn't just cry out, but he cries out as a lion that roars, that roars. Now we know the scripture tells us that Jesus is not only the Lamb of God, but he is also the sovereign king and the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. Revelation 5.5 tells us that. Joel 3.16 says, The Lord shall roar out of Zion. So here, this picture of the Lord Jesus, he stands and he cries out with a loud voice and he roars like a lion. You know, a lion roars when he's about ready to take over or to pounce a foe or an enemy. Lions always roar before they attack, right before they attack or right before they release their vengeance on whatever the prey is or whatever that they're after. And when we see this crying with a loud voice, the lion roars and seven thunders are uttered, uttered their voices. In other words, when this lion begins to roar, when Jesus begins to roar, and I believe that he's roaring, um, and, and we're going to see why he's roaring in just a minute. But how many know there's a day when the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords is going to roar and wrap this thing up, and his roar is going to permeate through the earth? It says, when he roared, there were these seven thunders. And what is interesting, John is told, he is told that, that he is not to write about these seven thunders, that he's not to, to talk about them or to write about them. And in this message, these, these uh, several things uh, in this message that we see here that is given to John. And so this last trumpet, these seven thunders, there's this message that's given to John. And there comes to him a, these messages. And one, it is a startling message. As we see in verse 3, we see this crying out. And, and we see that, that, that Jesus is seen as a lion. And so it's a startling roar of this lion. Two, we see it is a sealed message in verses 3 and 4. The thunder means that the, the storm is coming. And seven thunders have been sealed up. In other words, God tells John not to write. And in, in, in the ways and mysteries of God, some things are too wonderful for explanation and some things are too terrible for description. In other words, God is telling John not to write what he sees. Just as Paul was unable to write what he saw when he was caught up in the third heaven. And there are some things that we will not understand until they come to pass. Matter of fact, in the book of Daniel, chapter 12, Daniel himself, Daniel said this, he said in chapter 12, verse 8 and 9, here God is showing Daniel and Daniel's prophesying, although I heard, I did not understand. Then I said, my Lord, what shall be the end of these things? And he said, go your way, Daniel. For the words are closed up and sealed to the time of the end. In other words, Daniel could not prophesy or could not say or see or understand certain things about the prophecy. And they weren't revealed to Daniel. And he said, Daniel, these things are going to be shut up to the end. Here we see John. He sees the unveiling of these seven thunders, but he's not allowed to talk about them or are not allowed to reveal them. It tells us this, that God's ways and thoughts and plans are above us and beyond us. In other words, you and I don't live by explanation. We live by promises. We don't live by explanation, but we live by promise. And so we see that when we look at this, we see this startling message, this royal, this roar and these thunders. And then we see this sealed message that is unable to be descriptively given 
Thirdly, we see that it's a sure message. Verses 5 and 6, And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his hands to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and the things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in it, and the sea and the things that are in it, that there should be, that there should be delay no longer. In other words, thirdly, we see this sure message. God the Son swears by himself that time should, know, should be no more. In other words, he swears by himself for there is none greater. Hebrews chapter 6 verse 13 tells us that he swears by himself. In other words, God stands on his word. He's standing on his word in this passage. He, he, he swears by himself. And then we see also it is a solemn message. We do not understand the sealed part of the message. We do, though, understand what he declared, that time should be no longer. There should be no longer. Some of your translations say, for the time should be no longer. Some say that there, is, uh, there should be no, no longer delay. Uh, the word time there is translated delay. Some translations say that. Um, this does not mean that history will cease. The word here means when the, seventh, when the seventh and last trumpet of judgment sounds, then the mysteries of God will be finished, as the scripture tells us. That the mysteries of God, look at verse seven. But in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished, and he declared to his servants what he declared to his servants and prophets. In other words, the mysteries of God will be unveiled. They'll be, they'll be, they'll be, they'll be known. Sin has ran rampant. Righteousness seems to have suffered, but it's coming to a c- conclusion. God has given each of us a time of repentance. In other words, I believe at this point, the scripture's teaching us God is going to give us an answer to the whys we've always asked for. In other words, Jesus here lifts his hands to heaven and all the mysteries of God are being released. All the answers to the mysteries of God will be finished and answered. And so the questions of God, why this? Why have we let the wicked prosper? Why have you not? Why answers the, uh, God will reveal these answers and the mysteries which he had given to his prophets and to his, his faithful servants. In other words, sin has been on a rampage, but God is now putting an end to it all. And so God has given each of us a time period and man for repentance and a time to come back to God. And so the, the rapture, you may think, well, after the rapture of the church, I'll have time to repent. You may think, I'll have time, I got time now before the rapture of the church. In other words, the Lord Jesus is worthy of our total confidence and has everything under control when we look at this tonight. There's coming a time when Jesus is going to end it all. When he says, the delay, the time is going to end. Now it's time to begin to pour out the judgment upon man for his sin and for the ways that he's been. I told you a couple of weeks ago, don't you ever watch the news or watch what's happening and you're like, God, would you just sick them one time? Would you just not let them just, you know, you, you, see, you see some of the wicked and how they parade themselves around the world and, and you want, God, just one time on TV, I want to see somebody incinerated or struck with lightning because of their wickedness, right? <laughs> Would that be cool watching one of the news stations and boom, God strikes one of them with lightning, you know, just, you know, just one time, God, right? Just one time. How many know that'll straighten a lot of things up? I mean, I don't wish anybody judgment, you know, but I'm just telling you, it could change a lot of things, you know? It can make you feel better sometimes, you know? Just sick them, God, sick them. Holy Spirit, convict them. I'm sure the Holy Spirit has convicted many of them. But that's the grace of God. That is the picture of him. He's still merciful. Even to the worst of the worst, he's still merciful. 
And we can't be too judgmental because he was merciful toward us. And the same mercy he afforded us, we have to give the same mercy toward them also. So I, now I just pray, God, you just make them miserable until they get saved. <laughs> Misery is a lot easier to deal with than the fire of judgment to fall on them and incinerate them. But I'm not going to pray that anymore. We're just going to continue to believe God. Praise God. Hallelujah. And so we see, we see the, the mastery of, of who he is. Number four, I want us to see the ministry of his people. This is where I want to get to tonight. This is what's powerful about this chapter. When we begin to look at verses 8 through 10, and we begin to look at this, and we see here, it says, Then a voice which I heard from heaven, verse 8, spoke to me again and said, Go take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. And so John... So I went, and the angel said, said to him, give me, give me the little book. And he said to him, Take and eat it, and it will make your stomach bitter, but it will be as sweet honey to your mouth. Now John is given this, this script. Now this little book we've already identified as the title deed of the earth, which we see in Revelation chapter 5. Now here John is given this instruction to take this little book, the word little book here comes from the word where we get the word Bible from, Biblia. It's where we translate our Bible from. We know this is the title deed of creation, which Jesus had broke all the seals. It's a representation of the word of God. And it's in the nail-pierced hand of God Almighty, Jesus himself. And so John here represents us. He represents people. And the Lord tells John to take the book in his hand and eat it. And then he tells him down in verse 11, he says, And he said to him, You must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. He tells him to eat it. And then he tells him to go and prophesy. And so he tells him to take the book, to ingest the book. He says that when you... When you first begin to take it, it'll be sweet to the taste, but it'll be bitter to the stomach. How many know sometimes that's how the word of God is? Sometimes it's sweet to the lips, but when it gets down inside you, it can be a little bitter because how many know the word of God can correct us, the word of God can be in us, and a lot of times the word of God has an effect on our lives. And so he's asked to ingest this, ingest it. And so this word for eat here is an interesting word. To eat it, it it's, a, it's an interesting word in the Greek. It has three references. It has three references, which I believe is part of the three inscriptions that are meant by what Jesus is telling John by ingesting the book, by ingesting this book. In other words, it means to be, to appropriate or to, or to he says, ingest it. In other words, take it in. And so the word of God in our lives, when we, when we see here, is that he's telling John, take this book, take this word of God and appropriate it to your life. Ingest it into your life. Appropriate it into your life. It also means, the word also means to assimilate or to assimilate, assimilate the word of God. It's not enough just to simply to appropriate the Word of God or read the Word of God, but the Word of God is to be assimilated into our lives. In other words, it is a recipe book for our lives. How many know this book is a recipe for our lives? We're to take the recipe, we're to cook it, we're to eat it and digest it as a meal. How many of the Bible says, that tells us in Matthew 4, that that that. He is the bread of life. Revelation 10, 9 says it's bitter and it's sweet. Job said in 23, 12, he said the words of his mouth are more, are more, the words of his mouth are more than my necess necessity for meat, as Job had said. 
The Bible tells us that we shall not eat by bread alone, but by every word that cometh out of the mouth of God. There's this assimilating of the word of God. He's asking him to appropriate the word. He's asking him to assimilate it. But there's a third meaning to it, which I think is interesting. And it's funny, when we talk about the assimilating of the word, it will be both bitter and sweet. In other words, God is a God of righteousness, but he's also a God of justice and judgment. And and we live in a world, listen, most churches are spiritual diabetics. Y'all know that? Because all we give is sugar every Sunday. And we become spiritual diabetics. And what has happened is because we become spiritual diabetics, we've not assimilated the word into our lives appropriately. We've not digested the full counsel of God's word. We want the promises. We want the good stuff. But we don't want the stuff that makes us go, oh me, oh my, I've got to change. I've got to move. I've got to change my behavior or change my approach to something. We want, it. we want the sugar stuff. We want the good stuff. Right? How many of y'all with me? How are you sugarholics out there? Y'all want the good chocolate, right? You want the good chocolate. Now, when I was in Great Britain, they took us to the Cadbury uh, factory there that was in uh, Hall, England there. And there's a Cadbury factory. And they give you these packages of Cadbury eggs. Any of of y'all like chocolate Cadbury eggs? I love the Cadbury eggs. I could eat tons of them. But the chocolate in Great Britain is much different. It doesn't have as much sugar. It's made differently here in America. The formula is different. But I'm telling you, if you eat one of them, oh, it's like heaven. It's like stepping across into the promised land. You don't ever want to come back to America. You can't eat chocolate here again because the chocolate here is so full of sugar. You know, it just, you taste the difference. And the word of God is sometimes bitter and sometimes it's sweet. God, we got to start preaching the righteousness of God, but we also have to start preaching. Listen, there is a heaven to gain and a hell to shun tonight. There is life and death. There is salvation. There is condemnation. There's bitter and there's the sweetness of the Bible, of the Word of God. In other words, we can't preach one part of the Bible without preaching the other part. To do that is dishonest as a believer's. To preach the love of God without the wrath of God is dishonest. To preach the wrath of God without the love of God is dishonest. If we take part of the truth and make it and, and make part of the truth all of the truth, then the part of the truth becomes untruthful. Does that make any sense? I'll say it again. If we take part of the truth and make part of the truth all of the truth, then part of the truth becomes untruthful. So we are to, we are to assimilate it into our lives, apply it. We are to appropriate it to our lives. And so sometimes it's bitter and sometimes it's sweet. Sometimes it it gets deep down into our lives if we are ingesting it appropriately. What is he saying here in Revelation to John? He's saying, he's giving John the picture of John. You're just, he's, he's ingesting the scroll. He's ingesting the word, but he's revealing himself as a savior and the savior of the world. How many know Jesus will judge righteously? And he will judge rightly. And then the last thing tonight is we are to disseminate the word of God. In other words, we are to share the word of God with others. It means to disseminate. Not only to appropriate the word of God, but we are to assimilate the word of God, to ingest it. But we're also to disseminate it, to share. If we have no desire to give away the faith we claim to have, then we probably need to give it up. That faith is not the real thing. There's power in the word of God. If we believe all the truths that are in the Bible, then we will share it with others. We cannot be sinfully silent when there are those around us without hope in Christ. 
And so I want to challenge you tonight. I want to challenge you to appropriate the Word of God, to assimilate the Word of God, and to disseminate the Word of God, to release it to those that are around you, to share it. If we don't simply, we don't simply go to church on Sunday to hear a sermon and think that we, that that is our service to God, we must dis- disseminate the word to others. And if we know Jesus personally, if we know Him personally, and He's changed our lives, then we should have a desire to share our faith with others, right? Stand with me tonight if you would. What's he telling John? He said, you must prophesy again. You must disseminate the word of God. You must release the word of God. And I'm telling you, this is an hour when we must be sharing our faith and sharing the word of God with others, sharing Jesus appropriately. Truth is, Jesus is the one and only tonight. And in this scripture, we see him in his majesty. We see how we see, and it causes us to worship him. It causes us to fall down and worship him. We see him in his power and his conquering, and it causes us to bow our knee as a sign of lordship in our life. And we see his master plan for his people. He has given us the word of God. This is life to you and me tonight. This is our life source. This really is our life source. I'm telling you, this is my life source. I've told you this before. When I first got saved, I read through the New Testament several times. It was really a life source for me. I didn't have the early days... Of my Christianity, I I didn't I you know I had a few people around me, but this thing was my life source. I didn't even understand it all. There were some things that I read I couldn't even comprehend. But later the Holy Spirit revealed it as I as I began to ingest it into my life. Some of it was bitter. Once it got down in me, but it was always sweet as honey. Thank you for joining us for River Valley Community Church's podcast. If you feel led to give, you can click on the donation link in the description or visit our website at rivervalleymadison.com. If you've enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe or share with your friends. Thanks again for listening. God bless you.